We live in a world full of symbols, don't we? You turn on your car in the morning, particularly in the last few mornings, and the little snowflake comes up. That little snowflake gives you a lot of information. It tells you that it's cold, the roads are probably icy, and you should drive with care. Or that dreaded little red oil can appears, and something's wrong, or you need an oil check. Those little symbols are invaluable and important. You see, as you drive along the road, then you'll probably encounter even more symbols. Circles and triangles, all that very quickly communicate a lot of information to you. You see, symbols like pictures paint a thousand words, don't they? That's why businesses will spend so much of their focus trying to get branding experts every year to ensure their symbol, their logo, their brand is as memorable as possible. Kids aren't very old whenever they can spot the glorious golden arcs driving down the road. Sure, they're not. They see it, they know it's McDonald's. Both of our girls, or our oldest girls, were not able to read when they could spot the YouTube and Netflix button on the remote control. But maybe that says more about me as a father than anything. You see, symbols have a powerful way of communicating things to us. They hold deep-seated meaning. Just try asking any organization that ever tried to change their logo. Back in 2010, Gap, the clothing retailer, invested heavily in a new brand. The brand lasted a week. Such was the public uproar that they went back to their original blue background and white writing. Juventus Football Club had a similar uproar last year when they changed their logo to resemble Junction 1. You can Google that one for yourself later. See, symbols are significant. Symbols hold a lot of meaning and worth, very simply. We know that in Northern Ireland, don't we, particularly? And so it's strange that the global symbol for Christianity would be a cross, an ancient Roman torture device used to inflict the cruelest punishments. Cicero was a Roman philosopher who lived about 50 years before Jesus. This is how he described crucifixion. He said, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him, what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. Crucifixion, crosses to Romans, were so horrendous they were unspeakable. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the whole concept of the crucifixion was foolishness to the culture around them. So the question for us is, how has the symbol that was foolish to some, repulsive to others, become a symbol of hope and glory to so many? How is it that we put it in jewellery and hang it on top of churches? How is it that we hang it in our wall out there? What has happened to make the cross? Once a symbol of foolishness and destruction, now a symbol of hope. Simply put, Jesus' death has transformed the cross. Writing about 300 years after Jesus, one North African bishop said this, Christ's deformity is what gives form to you. If he had been unwilling to be deformed, you would never have got back the form you lost. So he hung on the cross, deformed, but his deformity was our beauty.
his deformity was our beauty. The Irish poet W.B. Yeats famously wrote about a terrible beauty being born. And in many ways, the cross is a terrible beauty. The earliest Christians understood that it was the darkness and the deformity of the cross that made light and life possible in Christ. And nothing could be more beautiful than that. Paul writes in Romans 5 of how it is the cross alone that can secure our peace and our reconciliation with God. Scott Redd is a pastor in the United States. He writes as he says, By dying on the cross, Jesus turned death into an agent of its own demise. Jesus turned death into an agent of its own demise by dying on the cross. You see, because Jesus went to the cross, because he was crucified, dead, and buried, as the creed says, now we can live confident of hope, of life everlasting with him. Because of the cross, the sting of death has been removed for the Christian. And so, it's over these next few weeks as we head towards Easter, we're going to spend the Sunday mornings thinking about the glory of the cross. We're going to reflect on the cross like a diamond we're going to hold it up and look at its many different facets to help us do that we're going to journey with jesus through john's gospel as he heads towards the cross in jerusalem we're going to stop and listen to him as he has conversations with individuals along the way we're going to eavesdrop on conversations that he has with his first followers teaching them what his death on the cross would mean and asking what does this mean for us today. This morning we start our journey in John 3 and you might find it helpful to have that open in front of you. It's a passage that I'm sure if you've grown up or been around church for any amount of time you'll be familiar with. It's well known but it's also probably one of the mis most misquoted and misapplied chapters in the Bible. Often verses from John 3 are cut out and placed on placards or held up at sports games without any real explanation. But John 3 isn't just a series of little verses, like something we take out of a fortune cookie. John 3 is a conversation, a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, that member of the ruling elite, as Andrew told the kids earlier, someone who thought he knew everything there was to know about the Bible. Nicodemus was an expert he was in the religious elite. And like many in his day, Nicodemus was waiting for the Messiah to appear. That's why he says to Jesus, are you a teacher sent from God? Are you the teacher sent from God? It wasn't so much a statement, it was more a question. Are you really the one, the Messiah, the one who will come to rescue us? You see, Nicodemus is looking straight at the Messiah but he doesn't recognize him. Why? We're told that Nicodemus comes to see Jesus at night. He comes under cover of darkness because he fears exposure. See, we cannot see properly when we wander about in the dark. Isn't that true? And in many ways, John is a master storyteller. I know, you know that whenever you read books or watch TV, if it's nighttime, if it's darkness, Nothing good is going to happen. I like a good 
dark detective thriller like Shetland or those geeky ones that come on BBC4 and all sorts of foreign languages, but sometimes they can be very dark. And you know that as soon as that show starts and they're in a forest and it's raining at night, that nothing good is going to come from that situation. And I'll send Sarah to go and make a cup of tea because she'll not cope with what's about to happen. Darkness is a symbol in many ways for what is not going to happen or for what the wrong that happens in life. And in many ways, Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the dark is a powerful living parable of humanity outside of Christ. We are in spiritual night and spiritual darkness. If you flick down to verse 19, this becomes very clear. John explains that the, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Jesus, the true light, has come into the world. But so often we hide in darkness because we fear that our sinful hearts and minds and motives will be exposed. It's what humanity have done from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, from they took that first bite from the tree, run into the darkness of the bushes and the trees to hide from God for fear that they would be exposed. They were physically naked in the garden, but also they were now naked before God. Their shame had been revealed. We run to the darkness because we fear exposure. We do it in our homes, don't we? If there's a, a dusty corner, we'll put on the small lamp so we don't see the dirt show up, maybe just as clear again. Maybe that says more about me. You see, it's scary to leave the darkness because to leave it risks exposure. The light will expose our evil deeds, our sinful thoughts, our corrupt words. Coming into the light means we're going to have to be open and honest. It means we can't hide anymore. In his first letter, John gives a powerful warning and a beautiful invitation. He says, if we claim that we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. John says, if we hide in the darkness... The only person we're fooling is ourselves. But if we come into the light, there we find freedom and forgiveness. I wonder if we are hiding in the darkness today. If we are, the gospel is a wonderful invitation to say, leave the dread of the darkness behind and find freedom and forgiveness in the light. But secondly, Nicodemus doesn't recognize Jesus because he's looking for the wrong person. In Nicodemus's mind, the Messiah is going to be a strong, victorious warrior king, not a poor homeless rabbi from Nazareth. Today, I still think we are in danger of missing Jesus because we're looking for the wrong person. We look to Jesus as a, a life coach, someone who'll give us good advice and show us how we can be happy, healthy, and wise. 
But the Jesus of the Gospels is not a life coach come to give good advice. The Jesus of the Gospels is the Son of God come to rescue us, come to give his life to enable us to become the very children of God. Jesus uses two examples when he's talking to Nicodemus about how he will become a child of God, how he will enter the kingdom. These images completely perplex Nicodemus. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You can read for yourselves, Nicodemus is confusing at those words. He's completely bewildered. Then Jesus goes on to talk about the wind. Really what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here is that entry into the kingdom of God is not achieved because of what you do, because of what you've done. But entry into the kingdom of God is a gift of God. Jesus is saying there is no DIY entry to God's kingdom. Remember Nicodemus is a religious leader, a Pharisee. He is famous for his moral performance. If anyone could be right with God because of how they lived, it would be Nicodemus. But Jesus says, that's not enough. Only God's Spirit can give new life in Christ. It is a gift of God so that we cannot boast. This has completely blown Nicodemus's mind. Look at the question in verse 9. Nicodemus seems at the end of his tether and he just says, Jesus, how can this be? How can what I think is right be so wrong? And so to answer Nicodemus's question, Jesus points Nicodemus back to a story. A story that Nicodemus would have been familiar with, one he probably memorized as a boy in the synagogue. The story that we just read in Numbers 21. God's people are wandering through the wilderness. Like most of us, they get hungry. They grumble about the food and the water that they have. But they're not just grumbling against Moses or someone else. They're grumbling against the gracious God who has delivered them from Egypt. They call out to Moses, ask Moses to pray on their behalf. And then God gives Moses this strange instruction. He tells them, make a bronze snake, put it on a staff, and when the people see it, they will live. That's the background that Nicodemus would have been so aware of, as Jesus says to him. Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Just like the darkness, the snake-bitten Israelites are a powerful picture of humanity lost in sin. How were the Israelites saved from those snake bites? They looked on the promises of God and faith, and they lived. How are we saved from sin today? We look on the cross and faith and trust the promise of God that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Tim Chester explains these verses like this. He says, Sin is like the venom of those snakes infecting all humanity, flowing through our blood as it were, and the prognosis is death. But at the cross, Christ absorbed the venom of sin in full. He drew it out onto himself so that he perished and we received eternal life. That's the only way 
we can truly see the kingdom of God. That's the only way we can be truly born again. We must look to Christ in faith and live. Chester goes on to say that we think we're clever enough to know God. We think we're good enough to be right with God. We think we're strong enough to please God. Nicodemus certainly did. But God would not have let his son die if, he could have, if we could have saved ourselves. God would not have given up his son as an empty gesture. Jesus died because there was no other way. In the darkness, we hide in shame and fear because of exposure. We look at ourselves and we see how far we have fallen. We become aware of our own sin and our failures. Even for those of us who profess faith in Jesus, our sins can feel like they overwhelm us. Guilt and shame can cripple us. We can feel so unworthy. Maybe we even doubt, could Jesus really love me? If he knew how I spoke to my wife yesterday, if he knew the way I treat my children, if he knew the things that linger in my internet browser history, if Jesus knew my deepest, deepest, darkest thought, could he really love me? Often we can feel like Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with us if he really knew us. Robert Murray McShane was a Scottish Presbyterian minister in the 1800s. He wrestled with these kinds of questions himself. When he felt burdened by guilt and sin and shame, he would say these words to himself. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with, heart, with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. And so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. When condemnation creeps in, for every look at yourself, take 10,000 looks at Christ and be assured that the promise to Nicodemus is the promise to us. Just as the Son of Man is lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. We are born in darkness and sin. Jesus invites us to look on him and live. We feel the dark clouds of guilt and shame surround us. Jesus says, look on me and find freedom and joy. We, like Nicodemus, are tempted to trust our own good works. Christ says, look to my cross. There I have accomplished your redemption. Let us remember the promise Isaiah made to God's people thousands of years before Jesus was born. There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. 
The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. By looking to Christ in faith, we become children of light. So let us live as children of life, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but shine in the world for the glory and praise of our God and Father in heaven. Amen.